no eye has seen. We're going to series looking at a place where none of us have ever been, and yet a place where everyone wants to go. I'm talking about heaven. By talking about heaven today, I begin a series that is going to allow us to not only see a picture of what it is that Scripture provides for us, but also to begin the series in a way that uh, we can start to see how it is that this shapes our whole worldview when we get a picture and a reality that this is not our home. This world is not our ultimate destiny. Uh, in the weeks ahead, we're going to be looking at not only the place of heaven, but uh, what happens to us when we go to be there. Uh, what happens, what's this new body all about? Uh, what it's going to look like when we get there? Um, also, who qualifies? Who gets in? Who gets out? Who's not going to make it? Those are big challenges for us. And, uh, and so we're going to build a picture, an image, about under, in our understanding of what heaven is about. Well, because today we're sort of rolling off the back of Waitangi Day, I thought I'd just sort of segue, go back a little bit and segue into this picture of heaven or this vision of heaven by making a, uh, a couple of points about our own history as a, as a nation. We know that uh, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840, 180 years ago. And it was signed by key leaders who came through from Britain to partner up with the chiefs here within Aotearoa, New Zealand, and signed a covenant, a treaty together. But that treaty was established not necessarily by those folks who signed off on it. It was established by a vision, a vision that was carried all the way from the UK to the shores of Waitangi. And there's somebody in there in this story that I want to introduce you to. I haven't got a picture of this person, but his name's James Stephen. James Stephen was a Christian, and he came out of a tradition of um, social justice that was something that was boiling within London at the time. Uh, it's a group called the Clapham Sect. Now, don't the word sect has a bit negative connotations these days, just the, the Clapham Fellowship. And this was established by some very key leaders in history, uh, one of them being William Pitt, who went on to be the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and his good friend, William Wilberforce. Now, William Wilberforce put the legislation through the House over decades that, is, that stopped slavery. The abolition of slavery in the UK is, is credited to William Wilberforce. So that generation served a huge purpose within the history of, uh, of world history. And yet there was another generation emerging through this group, and one of them was James Stephen. James Stephen was appointed as the undersecretary for the colonial office, which meant that he was overseeing all of the uh, outworking of the British Empire as it was establishing itself around the world. Now, establishing itself is a nice way to describe it. The problem being is that uh, establishing the colonies around the empire was a brutal, brutal task, which meant lots of bloodshed, uh, lots of racism, and it only benefited the higher echelons within the UK. The wealthy got wealthier, the British people themselves didn't have any huge advantage out of this, and certainly those who were colonised, they were literally killed and subjugated uh, in ways that were just un inhumane. And so James Stephen saw this and he saw New Zealand and he saw uh, Australia and he saw what was happening in Australia with the indigenous people there and he said, we can't allow this to happen again. And so he decided that he would try to work quietly behind the scenes to see that there was something done for this country of New Zealand that had been different to everywhere else. 
Now, the government over in the UK didn't want to put any money into this. Uh, they said anything happening in the colonies has to pay for itself, and New Zealand couldn't afford this. And so he went to the governors in New South Wales, and he asked them to send people across to Australia to work with the, uh, the informal government that was here at the time, just a couple of people, and establish a treaty. And so it was James Stephen who actually had a vision for what New Zealand could be. And the end result was that we, had a, we have a treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi. We know it's not a perfect document, but no human document ever will be. But it invites us to an ongoing conversation, an ongoing dialogue, which allows us to be the nation that we are. That document uh, was the first document that ever said to the indigenous people of the day that uh, you are equals with us. You are going to be subject to, but protected by British law. You will be British citizens from the moment that this document is signed. And instead of the abject racism that was being poured out upon the nations by the empire, New Zealand became a place and a time in history where we met together under a treaty as equals. And that is unique. It is envied by other nations. All because, why? Because a Christian had a vision. A Christian had a vision and was appointed a place of of authority to put this into place. James Stephen, best of my understanding, never visited New Zealand. But his vision has allowed us to be who we are today. And so what I'm saying here, and I want to segue back into the, the, the subject matter that we're talking about today, is that a vision can be empowering and a vision can shape and change the destiny of individuals and, in this case, of nations. And so when we talk about the Christian experience, the Christian experience is not only that we live for Jesus here on this earth, but we also have a vision of what the future will look like, yeah? Now, I don't know about you, but in the middle of winter, when it's freezing cold, it's raining, you know what rain looks like? You've heard of rain? Yeah, okay, water from the sky, yeah. Um, and you're really feeling like this is miserable. Uh, there are times when you jump online and you go looking for images that encourage you, yeah? Now, this is uh, Moria, for anybody who's uh, interested in the geography. Moria is an island just off uh, the main uh, city of Papaiti in Tahiti. It's absolutely beautiful, as you can see. And uh, we're always wanting to encourage ourselves with an image of what the future can be. And maybe, if we're fortunate enough, we plan something of a, a holiday where we have seven days in the sun lying in the sand. Does this sound good to you? Sounds great, eh? Especially if you're in the middle of winter. If this was August right now, you'd be jumping out of your seats going, yeah, 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 okay? But because we're stifling in the heat, you're not so worried about it. A few years ago, Michaela and I were in Rome, and some friends of ours said to us, you've got to go to this particular place when you go to Rome. It's a little bit outside of the Roman cities itself, city itself. It's right on the edges. Uh, but they said, there's a particular reason you want to go there. And they said, there's a, a keyhole called the Aventine Keyhole. Now, most of you wouldn't have heard of this. An Aventine, the Aventine Keyhole. And you go up to this keyhole, it's on a big fence, and you look through the keyhole, and you can see in the distance St. Peter's Basilica. No one knows if this keyhole was put here specifically to be able to allow this view to happen. You look down a, a garden, and, uh, and then you key into, literally, St. Peter's Basilica. So here's a keyhole, and in a Roman Catholic tradition, a keyhole that allows you to look upon the city of God, 
Okay, it's beautiful. Now, it's quite funny, actually, because what happens is you, you turn up at this, this place and there's this sort of queue of people, 20 people, and we all go, and you wait for somebody else to have their little look, and then you, like, as you do in a queue. But the, uh, the words that come or the noises that come from people when they, they poke their eye up and they go, ooh, wow. You know, so you hear this perpetual, ooh, wow. Have a look at this. Isn't that cool? So it's kind of a funny experience, really. Uh, well, I thought it was funny anyway. Um, but the Aventine keyhole gives a glimpse at the holy city. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take some scripture and we're going to look down the keyhole of scripture, scripture from different parts of the Bible that give us an insight into what heaven is about. The interesting thing about heaven is that the scriptures only give us a keyhole vision a keyhole view. And I think there's something, well, I know there's something in balance about this that allows us to anticipate and to see what the future can look like without it totally overwhelming us. And so this morning, as we look at Scripture, we're going to find ourselves um, seeing things in part. But the thing about Scripture is it tells us is that what we see in part, we can't even really understand. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians this, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. So even in our wildest imaginations, we today are not going to collectively build an accurate picture. We're only going to get a taste or a touch or a smell. Have you ever you know, walked past somebody's home at six o'clock at night, you're walking down the street and your nose tells you something is happening in the kitchen? Ooh, I don't know what they're having for dinner tonight, but I wouldn't mind being invited. Yeah? Is this, you've had that experience? Of course you have. Yeah. It happens at KFC and then you eat it and it's horrible. But, you know... Um, <laughs> So the smell, what we're going to have is, is, is an insight into the things of heaven. So heaven is, um, heaven is something that fills people's imaginations because we're created with this emptiness that says we need to understand why we have eternity imprinted in our heart, and yet we don't have the answers to that. All people from all walks of life, all creeds, have an understanding of heaven. So for the Buddhists, it's a, a nirvana, an ultimate place of uh, realization after reincarnation. For the Hindus, it's a, it's a karma-based journey that they're on, and uh, heaven doesn't necessarily exist as we understand it, but you're reinvented or reincarnated into a different form. might be an animal, depending on how well you've lived the life before you. Uh, for the Muslim, uh, it's paradise, and you're translated there in different ways and different means depending on how you've lived your life. Okay, for Hollywood, heaven has got a very, very different view, and yet it's one of the most overwhelming or overpowering views that we have within our collective imagery. It's often deemed to be a party, isn't it? A party that just continues to go on, and we never do anything else but sip champagne around, around a pool. You know, or you go to a you go to a, a funeral and somebody had been a, a great rugby player and they say, Oh, he's playing rugby on the eternal heavenly paddocks in the sky, you know. Or he's a golf golfer and oh he's playing golf perpetually. You know, these little images of heaven. But all generations, all ages. Uh the pop one of the most recent 
pop icons to come through is a, a young woman by the name of Billie Eilish. And uh, the title of her album is, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? That's the title of her album. Biggest selling album for years. And uh, totally uh, rocks everything that's been sold this year. But at the core of her album is a question, where do we go when we all fall asleep? Yeah, when we die. And so this is a question that's been ongoing for all of us. So our first picture of heaven is something that we, we can relate to. The first picture of heaven that we have comes out of Genesis. And uh, you know where I'm heading with this. Uh, so Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In, his, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so we're left with this image of paradise, this Garden of Eden. And it's an image that we can relate to because it literally is heaven on earth. Okay, literally is heaven on earth. And so we look at this picture and that creates for us an image of our own understanding. Now, most of us who live, obviously, who live in New Zealand have seen this sort of imagery around us because we live in a pretty spectacular part of the, the planet, don't we? In fact, I, I remember being down in Queenstown one time and um, I saw a T-shirt which I thought sort of summarised my romantic view of New Zealand. It said, um, when God created the world, he had all these little bits left over. And so he packaged them all up and he placed them at the bottom of the South Pacific and he called it New Zealand. Do you like that? Yeah. That's why our, our nation is, has got such a variety of beauty about it, eh? And I was like, oh, I like that T-shirt, except it was in pink, so I didn't buy it. So, <laughs> so this is one of the most powerful images that we have, and it informs us, us of what heaven will be like. And uh, it's attractive, it's serene, it's peaceful. You know, we can sort of see the, the children playing there, the grandparents there. We sort of have this image of family and wonderful, wonderful peace. However, in the, in the Old Testament, the encounters that God's people had with God, when the veil got thin and heaven and earth intersected, uh, the images are very different to what we see in Genesis. Uh, we have Moses, of course, meeting with God to get the Ten Commandments and the hill Mount Sinai, where he goes up to, uh, that becomes a sacred and holy hill. Uh, Moses was allowed up on that hill to meet with God, and uh, God gave him the Ten Commandments, but no one else was allowed on that hill. In fact, you know, the power of God broke out and would uh, destroy people. It was such a powerful image. And the prophets had different encounters with God that set them on their journey to be prophets to the nation. And I think this is the, the fascinating thing about these prophets is that at the early days of their service for God, they have these powerful life-changing encounters with God that sets them up for the future. You understand how that impresses upon them and just totally rearranges their worldview and therefore they're set on a task, to a task that is never going to be challenged or changed because the impression that they have of God, heaven and God's holiness just completely overwhelms them. This is what happens to Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Man, that's a powerful image, isn't it? That's enough to make you quake in your shoes. Well, what did, what did Isaiah do, you know? Did Isaiah say, great, this is the best show I've ever seen. Pull up my deck chair, get my popcorn and just get, a, get an eyeful of God. No, no, he knew that he had to respond to the environment that he was in. This image was so powerful, he had to change. He had to change. And so we read this, what Isaiah's um, response was. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So Isaiah's response was to... um, well, it wasn't his response actually, it was at the Seraphim's initiative, took a coal. Now, if you can imagine this coal is a briquette, okay, all the way from Bunnings, okay. Imagine this glowing red, okay, glowing red. You've seen this before, glowing red. Okay, and the Seraphim flies towards Isaiah. He's already cried out, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and, and this is placed upon his lips as an act of cleansing, Okay, and a symbol of being washed clean and forgiven of his sin. And so one of the images that we're given straight away is that heaven is not so much about us, it's about God. We often look at heaven and we go, wow, I can't wait to get there because the fishing's going to be great, you know, and the golf is going to be brilliant, you know, hole in one every time. I was playing golf a while ago. I was only four shots off a hole in one. <coughs> anyway doesn't matter, nearly got there. Um, <clears throat> so we have these images of heaven, but immediately we're reminded by, through Isaiah's vision that heaven is about God. And we're the ones who are transformed in his presence. We're the one who are changed in his presence. And so through, through Isaiah, we get again to see this, this vision of what heaven is like. It's, it's not complete, but it tells us that it's pretty spectacular. There's all these creatures there that haven't roamed this earth, but they populate heaven and they're there to worship God. And we need to enter into that spirit through holiness is what, what is being described to us, holiness. Well, we move further on and we find the book of Revelation has a similar image. And that image again is a keyhole for us to see what it is that we can expect. Quite a few, few scriptures to read to you here, but it's worth reading. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. 
These are the seven spirits of God. Sounds like a dog's there too. (coughs) Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. A keyhole. Another keyhole. Another keyhole that literally should, almost literally, blow our mind. (laughs) It's a place that, even after that imagery, I can't imagine. I jumped online, actually, and uh, wrote in Revelation 4 images. And, And they were weak, to be quite honest. They were weak when it came to comparing them to the Scripture. Because no one picture sort of can sort of capture all of these heavenly creatures and the power and the majesty and the holiness that is captured in these, this story. You know, the, the 24 elders crying out before God because of the revelation that they have of whom God is, bowing down again and again and again. Wow, what a worship service, eh? What a picture. It's not the sort of worship service where you attend it and you go, <clears throat> that was great, let's go have a cup of tea. Okay? It's a worship service where you're, you're changed and you're transformed. So <clears throat> we're given this image and it's a, it's a picture of heaven to come, as the book of Revelation describes, and a picture of what the, um, the prophets experienced. But the New Testament the New Testament, our Testament, the story of Jesus captures some images for us as well, which we need to look at because this is a, a more um, up-to-date, if for lack of a better word, up-to-date understanding of how an image of heaven affects our everyday life. Let's go to Hebrews. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word can be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So here's the writer of Hebrews describing the time when uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, you, us, we are not coming to this mountain. This mountain is gone. This image is gone. This time has passed. He says, listen to this. But you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Again, what is trying to happen here is that somebody is trying to describe the indescribable. Now, if, <clears throat> if I invited you to describe the indescribable, you should have nothing to say about the indescribable because the indescribable cannot be described. Is that right? So, therefore, I should just go and have a cup of tea because there's nothing that I can say that's going to give you a realistic image of what we will experience. Now, when we meet in heaven, when we meet in heaven, you can come up to me one day. I'm not sure how this all works, you know. I'm not, if there, I'm not sure if there's Bethlehem Baptist Street, okay? <laughs> so get on with the person sitting next to you, right? And you might be stuck with them for eternity. But you can come up to me and say, Craig, you know when you tried to describe the indescribable? Yeah, you didn't get it right. And I'll be happy. I'll go, yeah, yeah, I'm so glad I didn't get it right because this is way better than anything we could have ever have imagined because my imagination cannot imagine the indescribable. You with me? Yeah. Ah. So there were these little interactions that occurred during the times of, uh, of the disciples and, and the Apostle Paul okay, that, that we have recorded within the New Testament. And I just want to capture them, not because so much of what they saw, but what the response was after they'd had these experiences, because I think they're quite telling. The first one is the Mount of Transfiguration. Most of us will have read this in the New Testament. It's a time when the three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, traveled with Jesus up onto a, a high mountain, and uh, they had some heavenly dudes meet with them. Let's read it. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Wow, that's getting dressed for the occasion, isn't it? Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus Sorry, as men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves, and did not tell anyone of that time, at that time, what they had seen. So this is a, a divine encounter. Heaven touches earth, okay? And, and in that moment, Jesus is translated into what we can only describe as his, as his heavenly body. But Moses and Elijah appeared on the scene. They too, looking like a flash of lightning, super, super bright. And this... This experience was so overwhelming for them that it says that they didn't tell anybody about what they'd experienced. Okay, so they'd had a little touch of heaven, but it was more than they could describe, more than they could really reconcile. 
And uh, for them, this again was a little picture of what the future might be. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was at the top of Mount Monganui, okay, one, one evening, and I had some heavenly creatures turn up, bright as lightning, spoke to me in ways that I'd never experienced anybody speak to me before, and then a cloud rests upon me and they go, I think I'd walk down to the beach going, duck, 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 duck. okay, all right? I probably wouldn't have much to say to anybody either. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience. And, and it's fascinating here how he records it because he doesn't record it as if it's his experience. He actually wants to remove himself from the experience and he starts talking about this experience in the third person. Now, yeah, let, me explain, let me show you what I mean by this. I must go on boasting. This is Paul. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third, to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So he censored himself. He's seen stuff that no one is permitted to speak about. So in this moment, he's saying, I had this revelation of heaven. He doesn't know how it happened. He doesn't know if he was in the body or out of the body. But what he knows is that it rocked his world, totally um, fused his mind into some sort of heavenly uh, reality. But he can't speak about it because he's not permitted to. It's just way and beyond anything anybody would understand. So, so what does that mean for us? What, is, what does a vision for heaven mean for us? Well, quite simply, it puts everything of our life into perspective, doesn't it? Whenever I attend a funeral, life gets put in perspective. I don't know if you have that experience, but you realize that there are simple things that are really, really important in a person's life. What's remembered is the way they loved people, cared for people, nurtured people, encouraged people, created opportunities for others. People don't get up there and say, oh, you know, dad had the, the fastest car on the street and that was the best thing about him. They don't. They talk about him as a loving person, a kind person. But the image that any person carries of what their future is going to be, what their destiny is going to be, is going to inform an impact upon the way you live your life. And so let's have a look at um, some people who are celebrated again in the book of Hebrews and how it is that their lives were impacted by the vision they had of what was to come. These, these folks here, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Rahab, all of them had being used powerfully by God. And what does the writer of Hebrews say about them? We're segueing into that. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. You know, these are the sort of people you say, show me your passport. And they'll say, well... My passport says that I belong to heaven. I'm not a citizen of this world. 
and I live my life accordingly. Because they were looking for a country of their own, a country where their father had established them, would establish them for the future. Goes on to say, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sword in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecute, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in the holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You see, these folks lived a life that said, I have a citizenship outside of this world. Nothing matters. Nothing matters here because it's about the investment that God has made for me in the future. Some, um, well, about two years ago, I um, <clears throat> was with my, my dad and we were just heading back down the little lane that he lives in out at Tapuna. And uh, his neighbour was walking down the street. Uh, I won't tell you his first name, his surname is Bidwa, one of the local Tanga Tafenua out there. And, um, and we pulled up next to him, how's it going? And um, he says, he said, Murray, that's my dad's name, he said, Murray. He says, man, uh, something, whew, something's happened to me, eh? He said, oh, what? He says, well, he says, you know, I, was, I, I had a heart attack a while ago. And he says, and during that time, he said, I, I died. And he said, but I, I went to heaven. I went to heaven. And so here we are sitting in my dad's beat up old 1984 Ford Courier truck. And he's got his head in the window He's just got a singlet on, a pair of shorts, and he's still see the scars on his chest from the surgery that he'd had. And he's trying to describe his experience of heaven. And he's, and he's weeping, and he's telling us this. You know, and it was, like, it was just like being led into a holy, holy um, bubble of experience as he described to us what he saw. Okay, and he's still trying to come to grips with it, still trying to reconcile it in such a way that he can, he can make it understandable for others because his every sense that he has was overwhelmed. Everything about him was overwhelmed. And yet, you know, the question is, has it changed your life? Oh, yeah. He says, it's changed my life completely. And that's the beauty of what happens when we have an encounter with Jesus and when we understand the destiny that God has for us outside of this box that we live in, outside of this world that we live in is that our whole world, our whole orientation goes towards the things of God. You know, this morning we prayed for um, 
for Pauline and Angela heading up to Ruel. This morning we prayed for Colin and Tanya Anderton heading up to Mashidabad, amongst the poorest of the poor in the Bengali region uh, in northern India. Uh, why do the, these folks do this? Why do we invest our time and our energy, our money, our resources, our experiences, our wisdom, our love? Why do we invest these things into the kingdom of God here on earth? Well, we do that because we know this isn't our home. We know we're only here for a short time. And we know that the goal is to glorify Jesus and help others understand who he is. And from there, our shared experience and our shared hope of heaven drags us, forces us, compels us to a lifestyle that reflects that heaven is our home, not here. That's what Christian discipleship is all about. That's what we are all about as the church. And all that to say, all that to say, as we, we look through the keyhole that we're given through Scripture of the city of God, all that to say, the pictures that we have that motivate us cannot be told. Because <laughs> no eye has seen, no mind has, no eye has seen, no mind has conceived, no ear has heard what I have prepared for those who love me. Let's be changed by this. Let's be deeply affected by this. Because as we look through Scripture, we find stories recorded for our benefit of others who have embraced the heavenly city and have said, this will moderate everything about my lifestyle. It will moderate my aspirations, my goals, my vision for life. It means that I'm not there about gathering toys. I'm not going to play the game, he who uh, dies with the most toys wins. You know, the old story, you know, you don't have a, a hearse with a tow bar on it. You don't take it all to heaven, blah, blah, blah. We all know that stuff. But let's live it. Let's dream the dream that the ancients of faith were commended for. Let's dream the dream and put everything in our lives back into right order. Let's stand for prayer. God, we, um, we know we stand in a, a great tradition because generations have gone before us with their eye through that keyhole looking at heaven and yet serving, serving, serving with great joy. With great joy because we realize that heaven is our home and this isn't our home. God, we, we just want to pray that we can join those generations with the correction in our thinking that allows us to put everything in this world in its right place, to allow our lives to be spent, literally spent, literally exhausted at the end for the sake of your kingdom. God, we, we, we're, we're thrilled to be part of, part of this, this huge family. Allow us to right-size our aspirations by right-sizing you. Allow us to see what Isaiah saw. Allow us to see what John saw. Allow us to see what the disciples saw. Allow us to see what Paul saw. All of these images, God, helped us, help them to be able to put this world into perspective. And God, the reality is, this is where we spend eternity. Eternity doesn't have a, have a clock doesn't have a time schedule. 
but a place to dwell in your presence. Wow. That just blows my mind. Blows my mind. So help us, Lord, carry the vision of the indescribable. Help us to carry the picture of what is yet to come. That is deep within our soul and reminds us that we're yours. We're not our own. And you invite us home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.